you see my name, Aziz, you know, you can't be wrong. <laughs> if it looks like an Aziz, if it talks like an Aziz, it's definitely an Aziz, you know. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This is Maya Dolgan, and I am super excited to welcome you to the Taub Center's first episode of our brand new podcast, Data Point. Today, we'll be telling the story of a Tel Aviv tech company called MindLift. The team is young, energetic, and determined to make it big. And just like all other startup founders, they like to surf in their very limited free time and they might drink too much coffee, but they're not exactly the typical startup. I'll let one of the founders introduce himself and soon you'll start to understand what's so unique about this company. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. You're listening to Data Point, stories behind the scenes of the Israeli economy. Data Point, a podcast by the Taub Center. Can you start by saying your full name and your job title? Sure. Um, Aziz Kadan, a jet-lagged CEO. <laughs> I first heard about MindLift through my friend Naomi, who we'll hear from shortly, and was really excited to finally meet the team myself when we chose them as a the subject of our episode. I visited them at their office the day after Aziz returned from a long trip to Silicon Valley. He's pretty much always jet-lagged these days, as he spends much of his time flying back and forth to the States, pitching to investors and raising another round of funding for his company. So what exactly is MindLift? At MindLift, we provide a wearable solution for ADHD without the use of medications using brain sensing technology. Despite being called the startup nation, only about 8% of working Israelis are employed in high tech. While this is the highest percentage in any country, it still means that more than 9 out of 10 working Israelis aren't part of this world at all. And some groups have an easier time integrating into the field than others. According to the head economist in Israel's Ministry of Finance, Israeli Jews with degrees in high-tech related subjects are 1.3 times more likely to end up working in high-tech than Arab Israelis with similar degrees. This is important because our research shows that in Israel, people who work in high-tech make about twice as much as those who work in the rest of the business sector. And that's a huge difference. For Aziz, the beginning of his startup career and the inspiration for MindLift began with his family. I grew up in a family that is very involved with neuroscience and ADHD specifically, uh, mainly because my father is a neurologist that specializes in ADHD and my mother is a pharmacist that specializes in bringing medications home. <laughs> so <laughs> so he, he diagnosed both of my siblings actually with uh, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. Um, and um, he was the one that gave them the medication uh, therapy and the one that would bring the medication Guess who? It's my mother. So it's, uh, you know, they, they, it's the only solution that they had at the time. Um, and so I've seen the side effects that this kind of therapy can have, um, and like headaches, lack of sleep, loss of appetite and so on. In high school, Aziz and his co-founder Anis attended the same very competitive accelerated program. It's called Edgar, which takes um, excellent students in um, schools in Haifa district and uh, gives them the opportunity to start a computer science degree when they're 16 so that they can finish it one year after graduating from high school at 19. Usually it starts with 120 students and then most of them don't make the cut and it's only left with 20. Uh, so you have to like make it in the top 20 to continue. Um, very, after very, one year? After one semester, yeah. So it's, it's very competitive. It's very hard, um, but it builds character. I'm really grateful for my father who pushed to actually have me in this program, although I tried to quit quite a few times. <laughs> Aziz was a classic teenager and wasn't necessarily interested in studying in high school and university at the same time, but his father pushed him to do it. He's a cool guy and he's, uh, and he's very committed to uh, making his kids overachieve. 
basically. He's an overachiever himself. And the, the reason why he insisted on it is because uh, back in the day at the high school, we were supposed to have a computer science uh, specialization uh, when we enter um, 10th grade, but the school decided to cancel that. And so I tried to get students to sign a petition to bring that back because I wanted to study that field because I've been in love with computers all of my, all my life. Um, and thus, even the, you know, when I brought a lot of signatures on that petition, the school still refused. And then my father heard about this program and he's like, well, this is perfect for you. You don't have to study computer science through school. You can go from the back door and study it in university at the same time with school. Obviously, I was a teenager back then. And all I was interested in was, you know, basketball, drinking and girls. But, uh, but, <laughs> but he convinced me to do it. So, and then I had to give all of these things away. <laughs> the last vacation that I had was uh, when I was ninth grade. Actually, we're all from the same school. Anas, uh, Aziz, and I, we were at the same class. Uh, Hilal is also from the same school, but he's uh, one year younger than us. This is Amr, one of the four members of the founding team at MindLift, who all met at the prestigious Arab Orthodox School in Haifa. Uh, my name is Amr Khalayla. Uh, I'm the art director here in MindLift. I grew up in a city in the north of Israel called Sakhnin. Are there a lot of kids from Sakhnin who go to this school? I think I was, was only me and another one from like six, seven hundred kids. We were only two of us. Amr is the only one of the four who didn't do that Edgar program. I got offered that, but I didn't want to do it because it meant extra hours. And I was just like a teenager at the time. Uh, but uh, I think if I had a major of computer science in school at that time, I think it would have pushed me more to do to go through uh, something like that, which I would have liked, you know, now that I'm thinking of now that I'm 25 and I'm looking back, which I, uh, it seems like a good thing to have gotten through. In response to Aziz's petition, the high school did open a computer science concentration, but it was just a few years too late for Aziz, Anis, Amr and Hilal to benefit from it. Still, Aziz was on track to earn a degree in computer science because of his father's encouragement. Even though he himself is a doctor, he wanted Aziz to pursue computer science because Aziz showed a love for computers from a very young age. This guy is a visionary, honestly. Like, he's, he's amazing. Like, he knew when I was uh, uh, 10 or 12 years old, we were, you know, we were sitting on um, the couch watching TV, you know, Mabat, with, uh, what's his name? Uh, Chaim uh, Yavin. You know, he, he really liked him. He looks like him, by the way. Anyway, so... <laughs> So, uh, and like there was uh, a report about uh, startups and how cool they are. Um, and uh, he looks at the screen and he points to that, you know, startupist guy at the screen. He's like, Aziz, I see you there and I see you uh, creating a startup and you have to do it. I'm like, that, what's a startup, right? And so I have, obviously I did not understand these terms back then when I was a child, but I understood that it has to do with computers. Uh, so he instilled that idea since a very young age in me. Um, and so that's why he insisted on me going to that computer science program. It was super, super important for him because he knew, like, I'm telling you, he's a visionary. Like, this guy knew that uh, having me go through this discipline building program and then take my life from there, it would definitely end up in a place where, you know, startup would be my path. He wanted me to be a doctor. I'm not going to lie. He wanted me, he really wanted me to be a doctor after I finished my 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 degree, like pushed for it is like, yeah, why don't you, you study for being a, a physician and then you can combine computer science with medicine and so on. So I took the shortcut. I did not study medicine, but I'm combining medicine and computer science at the same time. So I think he's uh, satisfied. Even though he was only 21 when he started MindLift, this is not Aziz's first venture. His father's encouragement already led him to succeed in one project in the healthcare space. 
when I was 16 and a half or 17 back in the day, I started the first business, which was a diagnosis center for ADHD in Arabic. Because all of the objective diagnosis tests that were available for ADHD in Israel were either in Hebrew or in English. And we wanted to make something that is accessible for the Arabic speaking community. This business that I started still runs until this day, um, managed by my siblings. Then after a few years in the tech industry, I decided that I wanted to use uh, my passion for uh, neuroscience um, and software and combine them together um, to found a company that would tackle ADHD and not just diagnose it. And that's how MindLift was born. Their first break was being accepted to Mass Challenge, a Boston-based accelerator that helped set them on their path. Today, just four years later, the company already has a working product and a growing client base and is focused on a new set of challenges. And so right now, the biggest roadblocks that we need to get out of the way are getting that FDA approval, getting more clinical studies, and showing that it you know, works on large scale. Aziz is currently raising another round of funding to finance these things. He finds that how quickly it comes up that he's Arab depends mostly on who the investor is. If it's an Israeli investor, it's in the, you know, in the introduction email. <laughs> you see my name, Aziz. You know, you can't be wrong. <laughs> if it looks like an Aziz, if it talks like an Aziz, it's definitely an Aziz, you know. <laughs> With Israeli investors, Aziz says that his experience has changed over time. In the beginning, it played against me, basically, because um, the, in the beginning, I, would, I have nothing to show. I'm trying to convince people that I'm the right guy to do it. Not a lot of, like, not a, not a huge track record. I was 21 back, back in the day. Obviously, no elite intelligence unit. <laughs> nothing like that, nothing of that sort. So, um, and hardly anything in common with that investor. Um, so, um, they would look at it as if I'm um, a guy with a broken leg trying to run a marathon. Okay which is never a good thing. Um, up until I get that first investor, who was also, by the way, Israeli, um, and afterwards you get more investors and so on. But then once you pass that milestone of showing that your product is making money, and then you go sit down with investors that then they see that you're an Arab, they know that you had to pass so many hurdles uh, to get there. And, and definitely it's a more difficult path for you as an Arab than for other people who don't have this roadblock, let's put it that way. Um, and so they appreciate it more and they're more, they jump even more in the opportunity because they know that you've had to pass a, a higher barrier. American investors, on the other hand, are a bit of a different story. With Americans, um, it's hardly something that is discussed. Maybe with the political correctness there, but not sure. Some would be super interested to know more, definitely, about how it is uh, to be the only Arab startup in Tel Aviv. But I wouldn't say that's, that was something that is discussed with American investors. Because there's that tech shine to Tel Aviv. People are usually okay with it. We have a, a number of Jewish clients who I think really like really love the fact that we're based in Israel and that we have we have also some investors who are who are more interested in the fact that Aziz and Anas are, are showing a different side of, uh, of Israeli society. This is Naomi Kaminsky, vice president of product at MindLift and the first salaried employee hired by MindLift's four childhood friends. When I first joined the company, we were talking about getting PR, getting press. And Aziz was very adamant that he said, I know we have a good story and people like to hear it, but I want the company to speak for itself. I want the product to speak for itself. That being said, in Israel, um, people are usually surprised if they hear of uh, of the story. It's because it's not something that 
is too widely published. So if I talk about it, for instance, I'll always get people like, wow, that's, you know, oh, that's so unusual. Turns out that being Arab Israeli has some advantages in terms of securing funding. When I'm in the U.S., I can connect to both uh, the Jewish American investors and the uh, Arab investors in the U.S. And that's definitely like, you know, you know, double network in a way. Uh, so I would say that that's an advantage. The backgrounds of the founders has an impact not only on how they pitch themselves to investors, but also on the working culture at MindLift. Here's Naomi again. The company has a very strong appreciation for diversity, for um, thinking outside of the box, for uh, getting different viewpoints. A lot of startups, when you get there, all the people look the same. They all went to high school together. They all did their army in Shimon Matayim. You know, they, they were all sort of together in their, in their army service. Shimon Matayim, by the way, is an elite intelligence unit in the Israeli army. We're nine people in the company. We have four mother tongues, Arabic, English, Hebrew, and Spanish. And we have three religions, Jews, Muslims, and Christians. We have people who originated one, two, three three continents. I'm from North America. Jess is from South Africa. We have, of course, a number of the people who were born here, and Danny is from Spain. Being the company's first hire, Naomi herself added all kinds of new dimensions to the quote-unquote office culture. I also was the first woman on the team. I'm still the only parent, and I was the oldest team member until two months ago. And even after two and a half years, she says that there are still a few things about her life that her coworkers don't completely understand. There is that sort of shift. It just becomes really much more difficult to be available all the time when you're a parent. You have actual constraints in your time. Um, you know, you cannot be available certain hours. Um, the, the, you, you, whether it's something you put on yourself, you want to be with your children, you need to shut off. Um, and also, there's a certain level of emotional stress that comes together with being a parent that people don't always talk about. So you're, you know, even if you're present, if there, if or if your child is sick one day, or if you're, if it's August and there are no, you know, you're constantly trying to to talk to somebody about how do I, how am I watching my, ch- you know, who's watching my child tomorrow, and how am I going to make it to this meeting that I have? So it does. It does add a level level of stress, which you don't have when you're single and you can set your own hours and, you know, maybe you can come in at 11. But if you feel like coming at 11, leaving at nine, that's fine because you'll get your work done. Whereas, you know, I don't have that privilege. Naomi might be the only mom at MindLift, but her experience reflects that of many working parents and specifically young mothers across Israel. Most of the increase in women's employment in Israel in the last few decades has actually come from mothers of small children, four and under. But while these young mothers are in the workforce, what industries are they in? In general, our research shows that the fields in Israel with a lot of female employees, like education, tend to have fewer work hours, and others, like healthcare, have a big difference between the numbers of hours men and women work. But high tech is known for its long work hours, and there's not much of a difference between men and women. More part time options and flexible hours in tech might encourage more women and young mothers to work in the field. In any case, once they started hiring, MindLift also had to make some important decisions about how things in the office would run. One of the biggest challenges was adapting what language are we speaking in the office. <laughs> that was a very confusing part because before we started hiring people, you know, we were four in the founding team. We were speaking Arabic all the time. Right? Just, you know, no need to think about a different language. Then we had people uh, that did not speak Arabic at all. When I first joined, 
I was a little uncomfortable because I was the reason they would be talking English most of the days in the office because they would speak most naturally with each other in, in Arabic and my Arabic is non-existent. It was challenging to set the tone in what would be the official language in the, in the office. Uh, some people would follow, some people would not follow, but we eventually decided that it's going to be English. So we run all of our operations, our emails, our Slack messages, our stand-up meetings, internal meetings. Every meeting that we run is run in English and we try to teach people Arabic. Uh, uh, How's it going? <laughs> uh, slow. <laughs> the company also has one golden rule. It's forbidden to speak about politics in the office. We don't talk about politics in the office. It's, that's, that's pretty much basic. Nobody discusses politics. This is a place where we come to work. We joke about things. We, you know, we can, there, there even are occasionally some inappropriate jokes that, that go, you know, that you can make fun of each other because that's part of being, you know, I say bros, but it's not true. There are also women there as well. Naomi does a really good job at um, notifying people whenever they say something sexist. Uh, so that's, that's good. Aziz says that being located in the heart of Tel Aviv is another very intentional decision, even though a number of other Arab-Israeli startups are located in the north of the country, where there is a much higher concentration of Arab-Israelis. I wanted both Israelis and Arabs uh, to work here, and I wanted a, a location that is accessible to investors, accessible to clients, and accessible to anyone, basically, that wanted to visit us. It's definitely a more costly decision. Like It costs us more to be in Tel Aviv than in Haifa. It's definitely a trip that people have to make that are not living in Tel Aviv, but it's worth it for us being in a more accessible place where the ecosystem is already developed. I didn't want to be one of the other Arab startups in Haifa. I wanted to be the Arab startup in Tel Aviv. I, I wanted that. I, I wanted to make a statement. Amr, who was part of the founding team, agrees. When you're working at a startup, it basically takes up 90% of your time, I'm going to say 90%. And a lot of people that you get exposed to are from, from, the same, uh, from the same area as you. Before we were in these offices, we were using uh, shared office spaces. And we were getting to know a lot of youngsters like us that are starting uh, in startups. He also likes the lifestyle in Tel Aviv. There's nothing else you can say about Tel Aviv. It's really nice. You can do whatever you want. Seriously, like everything you can think about is just available here. Uh, very social life. If you want to be social, you can be social. If you don't want it, you don't have to be. Even though Sakhnin has developed a lot since he left, he says that once you make the move to Tel Aviv, it's hard to imagine going back. I'm a person that's like like a lone wolf, let's call it. I like to live on my own. I like to do whatever I want. So uh, living with my parents or like near my parents sounds like something uh, that's going to hold me up. Also, like the job opportunities, the work opportunities. Uh, it's uh, less available in the north, all of the north, not, not just Sakhnin. It's uh, uh, like access to all of these stuff is, uh, is less available. Work opportunities, uh, uh, leisure, let's call it. I mean, like going out at night to bars and like, I personally, I surf, so I need a beach next to me. So like, I don't have that over there. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll take a broader look at Arab Israelis in high tech and find out whether or not Aziz considers himself a success. We're representing the Arab community when it comes to startups in Israel. It's really important for me to show that, okay, there's a success. Did a friend, coworker, or your Facebook feed recommend this podcast to you, and now you're wondering what the Taub Center is? We heard Aziz's elevator pitch at the top of the episode, so here's ours. The Taub Center for Social Policy Studies in Israel is an independent, nonpartisan, socioeconomic research institute. 
The center provides decision makers and the public with research on the most pressing issues facing Israel in the areas of education, health, welfare, labor markets, and macroeconomics. In order to infuse Israel's policymaking with data-driven research and advance the well-being of all Israelis, you can learn more by checking out our website, taubcenter.org.il. When we left off, we were talking about MindLift's strategic decision to base themselves in Tel Aviv. As Aziz explains, there are many Arab Israelis in the north of the country who have the necessary skill set to work in high tech. You know how many talented Arab engineers there are in the north that are brilliant and are, are super hungry to jump on the first opportunity that, that they like or, you know, the, the place they would feel safe to work at? Um, I think companies should do more in that regard, you know, hiring more Arab engineers. And yet... The situation is, is not ideal. You know, if you take a look at the representation of uh, Arabs in the tech, I think it's less than 3%. With organizations like Tsofen, for example, it managed to get it from 1% to 3%, something like that. Tsofen, which is Hebrew for code, is a nonprofit that works to develop the high-tech sector in the Arab community. According to Tsofen's website, in 2008, Arab engineers accounted for half a percent of employees in Israeli high-tech, which is about 350 people. Today, they represent 3.5%, or about 4,500 people. This is an impressive increase, but what are some of the barriers that are still keeping Arab Israelis out of the high-tech sector? The fact that most of the Arab population is concentrated in the northern part of the country. And most of the tech is happening in the center, right? A lot of Arabs tend to marry very early also, and have kids very early, and so... This kind of like uh, traveling on and off uh, becomes kind of an overhead for people. This logistical burden drives them to prefer not working in the center, but rather work in the periphery. Not to say there are not good companies in the periphery, but there are much better opportunities in the center, obviously. Some of them would just, you know, end up teaching um, instead of working as software engineers, for example, and so on. There's the um, existing elephant in this country that you know sometimes people try to avoid uh, tackling, but it's racism and it exists. It's a real thing. Um, people get disqualified from interviews just because you know there's no cultural fit, quote unquote. So yes, some of these barriers are coming from the Israeli society, and some of them are coming from the Arab uh, mentality. So it's a combination of both that's creating the situation. That's not to say um, that there's no hope. I have hope because I see grassroots movements like um, you know, Hasub. Hasub means computer in Arabic. And I can see Tsofen, for example, that are helping. I can see Arab tech being uh, celebrated in this country. That's why I have a lot of hope. And I'm trying to do my part, <laughs> albeit not that significant, but yeah. <laughs> Organizations like the one Aziz mentioned are a step in the right direction. But there's still a long way to go. According to Tsofen's website, their goal is to increase Arab presence in high tech from 3.5% to 10% by 2025. There's another barrier to take into consideration as well. Here's Amr again. Startup uh, business is not very, it's not very popular where I come from. People go for more traditional stuff, like being a doctor and a lawyer and an accountant. Many people seem to steer clear of entrepreneurship in general, and in a sector of the population where 50% are below the poverty line, this seems to be even further magnified. 
Also, there are very few role models in tech from this community. So the inspirations for this was were people like Mark Zuckerberg and stuff, people like that. Not uh, not from the... He's not from Sakhnin. Yeah, he's not from Sakhnin. Maybe you can check his roots, but probably not. <laughs> to zoom out just for a minute, there are a number of positive trends occurring among young Arab Israelis. But the road to narrowing education and employment gaps between Jews and Arabs is a long one, and not only in tech. I find it interesting, but not so surprising, that the challenges seem to be fairly different between men and women. Arab-Israeli women have notoriously low employment rates, but the Taub Center's research shows that the younger generation of girls and young women are closing gaps with Jewish women on high school matriculation exams, or bagruyot in Hebrew, university enrollment and graduation, and those who do go to college are much more likely to work than those who don't. On the other hand, Arab-Israeli men face different challenges. A very high portion of them are working, but not necessarily in high-paying jobs, and their educational achievements are falling further and further behind Jewish men. For both men and women, some fields, like healthcare have become much more open to Arab-Israelis in recent decades, and wages are similar for Jews and Arabs. But in other fields, especially high-tech, Wage gaps are larger, and the chance that you'll find an Arab-Israeli coding the next Candy Crush is very low. But Amr's family is a bit of an outlier, and his brother is doing what he wishes he'd been able to do himself. Actually, I have uh, I have two siblings, and one of them just graduated from, from high school, majoring in computer science. When I asked Aziz if he thinks he's a role model in the Arab-Israeli community, especially for the younger generation, he was a bit hesitant. I wouldn't consider myself a role model yet. Um, I still think that I have a very long way not to go. Um, but I can be helpful to other entrepreneurs starting up that are at earlier stages than I am. And I try to help a lot and to give back to the community. But I definitely would not say that I'm a role model. So how is he able to give back? Giving around 15 to 20% of my time to meeting with Arab entrepreneurs that are willing to start companies, to answer their questions, either remotely or face-to-face. That's mainly it, basically giving to the community by mentoring. For now, that's the only way I can support, but the way I can see myself supporting in the future is by investing in companies as well. By the way, also one more way we're supporting is by actually hiring Arab engineers. We focus on that. Like We tend to give engineers that are not given opportunities in other companies, sometimes because of their name, which is a thing, a bad thing here uh, that's happening in uh, Tel Aviv. We tend to give them opportunities and make them feel safe. Um, and for me, that's also giving back to the community uh, by, you know, helping Arab engineers who are not able to find opportunities in other places find a home in Tel Aviv. On a bigger scale, Aziz has a few ideas about initiatives that could help Arab-Israeli entrepreneurs succeed. For starters, expanding and creating more programs that are similar to this one coming out of Israel's Innovation Authority. They give away grants to build the technology and you would basically apply for a budget and you would get 50% of that budget just to go on research and technology if you have some really good technology. For Arab entrepreneurs, the Authority of Innovation made it even easier, not, not by you know, accepting low-quality applications, but rather by giving more budget. So instead of getting 50%, if you're an Arab founder, you would get 75%, which is amazing. And we actually got that in the beginning, which was absolutely amazing. We even got 85%. So imagine that was a huge boost for us. Um, and, but, you know, so no strings attached, right? So the company fails, you don't owe anything to the government. But if the company succeeds and you're generating revenue, you will pay royalties up until you pay the whole uh, amount, which we're doing right now. So with the company, our company is generating revenue and we're able to continue like, like pay the government back 
on the support that they've given us. They've given us two grants already. I think at around like $1 million already, like in just grants funding, free money <laughs> in a way. Obviously, at the macro level, that's super influential. But then, you know, that is not enough by itself because to get that money from the government, you actually have to bring matching from real investors, not from your own pocket or family or friends, from real investors. And that's still a challenge for a lot of Arab entrepreneurs, for example. Uh, they don't have the right connections, they don't have the right network um, to, to, to get to these investors. And so some of them would get the approval of the application, but then just would never execute on it because they were never able to raise the matching funds. By the way, that's not only for Arab entrepreneurs, that's also for Haredim. Haredim, by the way, is Hebrew for ultra-Orthodox Jews. The same benefits, because the government realized, okay, how are we going to improve our position in the OECD? Let's put money into the, you know, the Arab sector and the Haredi sector. That's, these are the sectors that are underrepresented in our economy. So it's not out of love, but rather out of uh, <laughs> improving the position in the OECD. Aziz has a good point. The OECD, or the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is this exclusive club of developed countries, puts out a report on each of its 36 member countries every two years. And its 2018 Economic Survey of Israel is literally called toward a more inclusive society. The Innovation Authority grant helps Arab Israelis who are already entrepreneurs, but on an even more fundamental level, there's work that needs to be done starting already in the education system. I think language is a key uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship and globalization. Um, so entrepreneurship is all about globalization, right? I mean, so, you know, you can start a local business, but that's not, that's not going to be celebrated as much as, you know, starting a company that's going to disrupt the U.S. market, for example, right? Out of here. And, um, a lot of problems that Arabs face when they, you know, even when they have, you know, brilliant ideas, one of the biggest problems that they face is the ability to communicate in English. Big, big problem. And I love languages. Okay, so I'm an advocate for like, you know, know as many languages as you can or, you know, be really good at English or, you know, be really good at a specific language that, you know, has a really big impact on your future. And that's why when I look at the situation and you ask me like one thing that we can do right now in the education that would massively impact whatever we're doing you know we can come to kids and talk to them about entrepreneurship indefinitely but that's that's going to motivate the one percent of them that are really entrepreneurs inside okay but if you come to them and teach them better english for example or better communication skills this one percent that has the drive will be so much better at what they do and that's will achieve the impact right so that's 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 how we look at it um because at the end of the day when you're selling a dream to an investor if you <laughs> if you can't put two words together nobody's going to give you money Right. Um, whereas if you can charm them with your uh, communication abilities, um, you can show them that you understand the language of the market you're targeting, you can understand how to communicate with people and collaborate with people from different nationalities because you have this uh, ability uh, to use your language um, uh, in a way that allows you to collaborate with so many people. Uh, this is this is why you know this is this is one of the, one of the motivations why investors would would believe in you uh, because communication is key. How you communicate with the team, how you communicate with the outside world, how you communicate in your marketing. How do you even write an application for the chief scientist? There has been a modest improvement among Arabic speakers on English standardized tests in elementary and middle school, but it's a completely different story at the high school level. The widest achievement gap between the Hebrew and Arab sectors on the matriculation exams is still the English tests. More accessible work opportunities could also have an impact on Arab-Israeli society. One of my dreams actually is to to be the first company that opens offices in Tel Aviv, San Francisco, and then to Baca. <laughs> Baca. <laughs> Baca al-Garbiya is the town where Aziz grew up. 
honestly, like I'm, I'm seriously thinking about this, and we're actually going to execute this after the round. I mean, definitely having an office in Baca would be a huge for two reasons. First, it's kind of an international company opening offices in like an Arab town, <laughs> which is a big deal for everyone. Um, and secondly, it will make it much easier for uh, engineers from the Arab community to come and work at a work workplace that is close to home. Um, and then even there's a third reason, which is uh, bringing a startup culture uh, to Baca, which is absolutely amazing. And uh, that's that's the social impact that I'm striving to make. Um, and um, if that can help the community um, strive uh, for success, uh, then yeah, definitely. And I will even make it with uh, with glass windows and everyone can see everything that's happening between them. I'm, I'm all for that, you know. <laughs> Plus, there's at least one strong financial incentive for MindLift. The rent, the rent is absolutely amazing there. I mean, come on. <laughs> Recently, I went back to MindLift and got coffee with Aziz. I happened to catch him on a pretty tough day. The company had just released a software update and things were not going smoothly. In between talking about big strategic questions like how to choose where to put your limited resources and learning that he credits Cartoon Network for his beautiful English, I was thinking about what he said about running a marathon with a broken leg. Aziz just wants to be a startup founder like any other, not to be called out for the things that make him unique in this extremely competitive ecosystem. But while the stakes may be high for any founder who's poured his heart and soul into his company, to me the stakes seem so much higher for this team. Whether they like it or not, they're representing something much greater than themselves. Our community, the Arab community, looks at us in a way where um, we're representing the Arab community when it comes to startups in Israel. Um, and um, it's really important for me to show that, okay, there's a success, right, for other people to follow. Because the moment you have one, you know, one big, huge company, um, the, you know, others will see, okay, well, it's possible, right? It's possible to build huge companies from here, even if you're an Arab. Um, and that's basically the message that I, that I want to uh, convey. They keep asking us, like, uh, come on, when, when are you going to do an exit and become millionaires? And like, doesn't work like that, you know. They already think I'm a millionaire for some reason because I raised two million dollars and like I try to convince them nothing of this goes to my pocket. And guys, it's just a headline, you know. <laughs> um, and um, but um, I can say that I don't see myself as a success yet. I'm still uh, in the very, very beginning of that of that path. Um, they, the community is very supportive, very very supportive. Um, um, they um, they mention us in a lot of uh, venues. Um, they they take pride uh, in in whatever we're doing, uh, both because just you know the entrepreneurship part and also the social impact part of the company and you know the idea of the company is like it resonates with them in all aspects. Um, I, for me, that's 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 a really nice thing, but it even puts more pressure on my shoulders, you know, because at the end of the day, even like you know the company still exists and. That's all nice and beautiful, but there's still a chance that the company might fail. And if the company fails, I failed everyone. Um, so I have I have this drive also um, on my shoulders. You know, that's uh, um, I know that a lot of people try not to say it, and uh, people like try to hide it. But obviously, I have a fear of failure. You know, obviously, and I'm not gonna hide that. A lot of people, you know, try to say, you know, never, you know, never fear to fail. No, that's bullshit. You know, it's a, come on, like it's 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 a common fear to have. That's fine. And uh, it's also I have a lot of guilt. Um, you know, when I take uh, money from investors, if I don't that spend that money wisely and uh, carefully, I have a lot of guilt uh, towards it. And if I uh, 
if the company does not succeed and I burn their money, even though they're investors and they can afford that, I still have a lot of guilt. So that's basically part of the drive. And that's why I still don't see myself as uh, very successful. But that's something that I need to work on. Also, <laughs> I'm exposing my uh, vulnerabilities here. <laughs> These sort of um, really, I'd say, sets the tone in the company when it comes to striving for success, working hard. He has very high standards for himself. Everybody else tries to emulate him. The hopes that I raise in the community are, are the ones that I don't want to shatter. Like I don't want to. I don't want them to. I want these hopes to get, you know, keep on getting higher and uh, to meet their expectations of the version of who I am. Uh, the version of who I am in their minds is definitely better. Who I am, who I am actually in, in real life, <laughs> um, and I want to match that expectation. I want to thank you, Aziz, for all the time you've given us and sharing your story with us. And I wish you a lot of success. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, happy to share my perspective. Thanks. This episode was produced by Tamar Friedman-Wilson, Lior Morag, and me, Maya Dolgan. Editing and sound by the awesome team at Podcastico. Special thanks to Professor Avi Weiss, Susie Padbenvenisti, and our friend Mishi Harmon. And a huge thank you to our sponsor, the Herbert M. and Nell Singer Foundation, for making this episode possible as part of the Taub Center's annual Singer International Policy Conference, themed this year on the future of the Israeli labor market. To see what else took place at this year's conference, please visit our website at www.taubcenter.org.il. Special thanks to Aziz Kadan, Amir Khaleli, and Naomi Kaminsky at MindLift for taking the time to speak with us. You can also check out some photos from our time with Aziz, Naomi, and Amr on our website. And since this is the Taub Center's first ever podcast episode, we want your feedback. Our email address is podcast at taubcenter.org.il. To stay updated on all things Taub Center, sign up for our monthly newsletter through our website and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you're interested in sponsoring future episodes of this podcast, be in touch. I'm Maya Dolgan, and before we sign off for today, here's a fun fact. MindLift was one of four Israeli companies that got to present their product to Prince William when he visited Israel this year. MindLift's app has a concentration exercise where you watch a video and the brightness goes up and down based on how focused you are. Last word goes to Aziz. We were demoing the product to Prince William. We put the royal wedding as the video. He was not impressed. <laughs> Produced by Podcastico. Podcastico, a podcast production company in association with Urban Place. Urban Place, upgrade your life's work.